I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Troubling Issues. This is a podcast about comics for everyone. Every fortnight we read a single issue of a comic book and talk about it in somewhat ridiculous detail to entertain and to inform you about it and hopefully a heap of other stuff. If you want to, you can read along with the comic book, but you don't have to. Now this comic that we're reading may be good, bad, or a little bit crazy, but it will definitely be noteworthy. I'm Brad Daniels, comic writer, artist and fan, and this week's guest is myself. What? That's right, I am going to be doing a comic by myself. Uh, the reasons for this are twofold. One, I, uh, I was too slack to line up a guest for this for this episode. And two, uh, it's something I wanted to do for a while, which is I, I get people on and we talk about comics and I ask them about themselves, but I don't really talk about myself. So in the off chance that someone is interested in what I think, well, this was my chance to let you know like what who I am and where I'm coming from and what I think of comics. Yeah, I'm a comic writer, artist and fan as I say uh, in the intro and I'll go through those in chronological order and give you a bit, a bit of background on myself. Uh, I started reading comics when I was probably oh, five, six years old. My mum often talks about when I would go visit my grandma, we, I would go out to the, uh, the sunroom and uh, grab some uh, Rupert the Bear comics. Now I don't know if anyone's familiar with those. Those are like old English, old English comic books. Not so much big on the on the word balloons, but lots of descriptions, uh, lots of text to get through. And it was Rupert and his other animal friends uh, having scones and having adventures in the English countryside. It was all very twee. It was all. Very nice and very suitable for a six-year-old, I'd say. Um, yeah, so, and around about that time, uh, there was a show on the television. Uh, it's 1976, 7. There's a show they were showing on the television called Batman. Now, I don't know if anyone's familiar with this, but Batman is a niche character who, uh, who is a, uh, he's a, a vigilante who fights crime in the city of Gotham City. He has a sidekick uh, and is, has a colourful rogues gallery of of baddies that he fights occasionally. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've known, heard about that guy, but yeah, he was sort of a big deal back then. <laughs> of course, I, I kid, because yeah, everyone knows Batman. Batman is one of the most well-known characters uh, in in modern uh, pop culture. He is, as a character, as uh, a bit of a phenomena since his first appearance in the 1940s, I believe, late 30s, early 40s. You're going to have to look that one up for, for me. Um, and the thing I love about Batman, okay, because I, I got into Batman watching 
the campy TV show that was made in the 60s and was being rerun when I was a kid. And, of course, the, the those old shows worked on two levels. They worked on the straight adventure level for the unsophisticated, say, uh, six-year-old uh, Aussie kid level, and it also worked as a camp comedy for the grown-ups who knew uh, were knew how ridiculous the situations that uh, Batman kept on finding himself in were, and realised how over the top it was, and basically was making fun of the whole concept of getting dressed up as a Batman to fight crime. Because that's a crazy thing to do. It's crazy. Uh, but the good thing, this shows the the flexibility and the goodness of the character. And that is, it can be like played in so many different ways. It's such a flexible concept. Uh, the fact that it can be presented in two ways in the one show is itself would suggest that. But, you know, you have your camp Batman. You have your, you know, action hero Batman. You have your globe-trotting super spy type Batman. You have the ground-level crime-fighting detective Batman. Uh, Batman can be a figure of fun and ridicule. Uh, Batman can be super serious, uh, like fighting serial killers and stuff like that. It's all in what you want to, like, how you want to approach it. Like, so many different versions of Batman have been shown over the years. And, I mean, there's got to be one. Even if you hate the idea of Batman, there's going to be one out there that you're going to find it entertaining. So part of the appeal of a character is its endless flexibility and the fact that it can be recreated and reused in so many different ways. Okay, so that's a little talk about Batman, but let's get back to me. So I grew up in Bundaberg, which is a small rural town in Queensland, Australia. It was, at the time, known primarily for growing cane sugar. And I was a very average student. I was not very interested in uh, book learning or anything like that. But I did love me some comic books. And when I was, from a very earliest age, when I would sneak off to read Rupert the Bear, and I would uh, slowly start to buy books. And then around about when I was 14, I ended up spending a couple of, about a month in hospital due to a kidney condition. And uh, my parents bought me comic books. Uh, they brought me a comic book called Captain Carrot and His Amazing Zoo Crew, which was the first comic I ever collected. Because I could get each and every subsequent issue. I was it was a superhero funny animal spoof. And that's something I'd like to look at someday in this podcast. It's a very uh, unique little uh, series. Lots of like uh, pun, punish names and puns on ideas. Uh, yeah, and cool cartoony artwork by Scott Shaw. And it was written by a fellow called Roy Thomas, who was one of the second generation of Marvel writers and just a specialist in writing superhero comics that drew on past ideas and re-contextualized re, uh, them and updated them while paying uh, tribute to their origins. He was a, a very influential, I don't know like how much of a good writer he is, I don't know how much original stuff he brought out, but he was very 
uh, a very accomplished writer and a very influential writer in comic books. Uh, he was uh, basically single-handedly the writer who brought in the whole continuity wonk uh, sort of writer who was always bringing back things from many, many years ago and reincorporating them into stories. For instance, in Captain Carrot and the Amazing Zoo crew, uh, he would bring back old uh, funny animal characters that uh, DC Comics were publishing back in the 1950s and incorporate them into the story of these ridiculous uh, superhero animals. So he, he was there. Uh, yeah. And uh, like I said, second generation uh, Marvel writer. So first generation of Marvel comics were all written, basically all written by Stan Lee uh, in conjunction with his artists. And there came a point where it was, like, it was too much for him. So he's passed the bat on to other people. He uh, p- perhaps lost interest in writing a dozen comics a month. And Roy Thomas was one of the first writers to take over from uh, Stan Lee and write comics uh, for Marvel, which basically had been built from scratch from Stan Lee and his artist and his uh, his publicity hound tendencies. So that's uh, Captain Carrington's Amazing Zoo Crew. Uh, so I would have been about 14 or so when I started collecting that, and that's when I got serious, and that's when a lot of crazy stuff was happening in comics at that time. There were, it was around the time of Secret Wars on Marvel's side and Crisis on Infinite Earths on the DC side. These are two huge comic books of the day, which were basically uh, the biggest crossovers uh, of all the superheroes for each uh, respective company. Secret Wars was basically a an attempt to sell toys, but actually lucked into having an actual good story involved as well, with some very iconic images in there. Whereas Crisis on Infinite Earths was uh, conceived from the ground up as a like a uh, epic rejigging of the universe, which is something that uh, Marvel and DC, uh, D- yeah, not DC and Marvel, do on occasion uh, to try and freshen things up. So there was all this crazy stuff going on, and growing up in Bundaberg, there was a limited resources for me to get comic books. Basically, there were news agents, and if I was lucky, I'd see something there that I could pick up. Uh, and if I, I missed a issue because it didn't come to the news, ag- news agent, that's just the way it goes. So I would like after after school, I would get on my bike, I would ride into town and go do a a a, a circuit of five or six news agencies in town to check to see which had what and like count up my my <laughs> my limited funds and grab some comics along the way uh, so by the time that uh, it was 1986 I was well and truly uh, hooked on the comic experience uh, yeah so about that time 1986 I was 15 going on 16 and we went for a trip down to Brisbane which was about uh, 400 kilometers away 200 miles for those who use the imperial system to visit relatives probably for Christmas I'd say it's like it's, this is a long time ago for me so it's hard for me to recall the exact details but 
one of the things we did when we got down to Brisbane is I knew there were comic book stores, actual, factual, no lie, comic book stores in uh, in Brisbane. So, uh, naturally, I went to them. Uh, now, I can't, uh, for, it is my eternal shame that I cannot remember the name of the store that I went to. I know exactly where it was. It may have been an early version of Comics Etc., which is uh, a comic store in Brisbane that still runs to this day. Or it may be known as, it may be something like the Comic Dungeon or something like that. It was downstairs. Um, and I went down there and I found some books that I had not seen at the newsagents in Bundaberg. And one of them, that, that day, one of them I bought, I think I bought two of these very expensive comic books. They were like uh, paperback novels, much thinner, but with uh, cardboard covers, probably around about uh, 48 pages, uh, no ads. And I had heard of them, I'd seen like, I'd seen ads, house ads in the DC books for these books, and this was Batman the Dark Knight. Now, I, you know, I, like all good-thinking people, uh, like Batman. And I thought, well, I hear these are, like, they're, they're definitely hyping these up. I'll grab a couple, which is all I could afford. Uh, it was probably around about, probably about 8 or $9 each for a comic, which is obscene in those days. These days, you know, that's that's your cheapest comic, but that was like crazy prices. Uh, but I I bought uh, the two that they had, which was uh, Dark Knight Returns, number three, book three and book four. So I didn't have the first two, and I took them home and I read them. And that night, it was like it was just blowing my mind. What I was reading, I was like, I could not believe this was in a comic book. It was like, this, this is Batman. What's going on with my brain? Ah. And if I recall correctly, the very next day, I convinced my parents to take me back to that comic book store, lend me some money so I could buy some more of these books. Uh, I got number two, book two of The Dark Knight Returns. Uh, book one was nowhere to be found. And I did not get to read that till a year or so later when there was a collected edition released as a paperback. And I uh, got the History of the DC Universe, uh, which was same format, but basically just lots of nice pinups and stuff like that. But this, like, this was a, this was a major change. Yeah, like, this is something that I could never have imagined would be depicted in comic books. It was so unlike the other superhero comics that I had read at that stage. Uh, so that is a way, a long way around of saying, for this special episode, and this is going to be part one in a series, because I will be talking a lot about this comic. This will be me reading, uh, rereading for the first time in a long time, uh, book three of The Dark Knight Returns, uh, published by... DC Comics in August 1986, written and drawn by Frank Miller, inks by Klaus Janssen and allegedly Todd McFarlane, and beautiful colours by Lynn Varley. 
Letters by Joe Costanza. Edited by Dick, Giordano, Dick Giordano and Dennis O'Neill. And this is a comic that, you know, I took home, I read, my 16-year-old brain just exploded when I read this. And the legacy these days is a lot is a little controversial, let's say. But um, at the time, it was... It, it helped redefine comics. This and the Watchmen series were the two books that uh, really uh, redefined what comics were uh, from then to today. They are the the repercussions of these books are still being felt, and uh, some of the themes and storytelling techniques are still being used and abused to this day. So this was a comic that really blew my mind. But uh, before we go deep into that, I will tell you a little bit more about myself uh, to give you a bit more background there. I was a comic book fan for many years, and I regularly bought comics uh, all through uh, the 90s. I probably fell off for a few years in the 2000s, and I came back. I still buy comics to this day. I only buy two regular comics, but I am constantly buying little special editions or things that catch my eye, things that are cheap or things that I am very interested in. In fact, one of them, here's a, a sneak peek of an, a coming episode. Uh, I recently picked up a comic called, uh, published 1975 by DC Comics, called uh, Superheroes versus Super Gorillas. And we are going to be reading something from that. So if that doesn't get you excited... I don't know why you're still listening to this podcast, because that is the best thing ever, ever, <laughs> the best concept ever, uh, and clearly, uh, I'll talk more about that later, anyway, uh, so yeah, I was really into comics for a long time, and it came to pass that I was living in a share house with some musos and artists who, uh, who had the artistic ability that I lacked. Uh, but I was super keen on comics, and I had I was living with these artists, and one of my best friends, uh, Daniel Zimmerman, uh, who is a lovely human being, was also happened to run a print shop at that point in time, and it was like the perfect storm of confluence of like I well, uh, comic book artists, uh, print, I could make my own comics, and I did, I. In uh, 1994, I put together the first edition uh, with, uh, when I say I put together, I, I har- harangued my friends to make it. I wrote some, I drew some very terrible art for it and published the first edition of uh, Groovy Gravy, which was an anthology of short stories by local artists, which I would then go to publish for the next uh, 25 years, bringing out about 23 issues. So that was my start in publishing. Uh, it was mainly like getting my more talented friends to do stuff. Uh, and then putting it together, paying for it eventually, and uh, trying to sell it. Uh, that led to me going to lots of conventions where I met some of my heroes, uh, including, uh, well, Chris Claremont, writer of the X-Men, uh, a lot of Australian 
uh, artists like uh, Jason Paulus, who did Hebat the Hippo, no, Doug and Trudy, the team behind Pla Platinum Grit, and uh, I mean, embarrassingly, uh, uh, Dave Sim, who is no longer a hero of mine, who at the time was doing some amazing grave, uh, groundbreaking work, but also was slowly going crazy. I I continued to make comics sporadically after I took a seven no a seven or eight year break in the at the turn of the century. Where I just lost interest, and then I got back into it when the Supernova started happening in Brisbane, and I was like, oh, oh I remember when I did the conventions back in the nineties. Uh, I'd love to go to them, but I'd need to bring out. I'd have to have something to sell, so that was it. I said, oh well, I guess I'm gonna make a new comic book and that's what I did uh, did that for another few years uh, last one was probably 2018 I I called it quits on groovy gravy and said if I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do this right I'm gonna have to start working on my art and doing doing more writing and produce stuff myself not uh, not depend on those around me for producing the content that I'd be selling. And that's where I am today. I'm currently like working on my own comics, writing and art, uh, selling them at local markets. I mean, my plan was to sell them at uh, conventions and stuff like that, but for some reason, conventions have sort of dried up uh, for the past 12 months. So I'm back to local farmers markets and stuff like that and I do I'm doing pretty good out of that and I can gives me some income and gives me a chance to chance to work on my creative things so I'm currently you know I've got three or four projects on the boil and hopefully they'll come into uh, come to fruition shortly last year I had my first Kickstarter where I kickstarted a collected edition of my humor comic tales too stupid to tell and that was quite uh, successful, and I've uh, I've been bringing out new mini comics, and working on a new science fiction comic, as well as a uh, anime inspired like all ages comic that I am going to be working on once I finish recording this podcast. So that's where I am. Uh, if you want to find, if you want to see some of my work, uh, then. Why not go to edgecomics.com or look go to the Edge Comics uh, page on Facebook. So that's Edge E D G E Comics with an X C O M I X uh, dot com or on Facebook, and you can see where I'm going, what I'm doing, and what I'm working on at the moment. So that's enough about me. As a person who I can be quite self-conscious, but once I start talking about myself, it can be hard to stop. But now we're going to talk about this comic book. Now, I've set myself a time limit of 30 minutes for this episode, so we will not get very far in this comic book. But, as I said, this is the first of a series, and we will be coming back to it. Uh, please let me know if you uh, think this is worthwhile. Give us some feedback, or leave a review on, uh, on a podcast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods, uh, because I'd love to know what you think. So let's start the cover of Batman Hunt the Dark Knight, Dark Knight Returns, Book 3. Now, it's a very, it's a striking cover. It's a bit weird. There's a big bat symbol. 
a big perfect circle bat symbol as was popularized uh, by the Batman movie years later uh, and I guess the gray background the the black symbol is there and in the bottom right hand corner uh, Robin sits with a it's your traditional looking Robin except uh, they're wearing uh, wraparound sort of like sun like green tinted sunglasses specs and has a a little uh, slingshot tucked into their belt uh, but other than that it's the your classic uh, Robin with pixie boots the red vest yellow uh, cape it's not the most arresting cover it doesn't really tell you a lot what's going on um, so I'm not sure why I bought this based on the cover it must have been because of I'd heard about the contents or at least heard the hype that they were talking about so this is a interesting cover but not what I would call a, uh, a amazing cover it's more of a like a design cover than an art cover it's got an interesting design but it's not got uh, amazing art on it now I will be reading from the absolute dark knight collection which is an oversized hardcover collection which includes the original uh, dark knight return series as well as the sequel dark knight strikes again which came out in the 2000s not nearly as well received but uh you know uh it is what it is and i've got the book so i'm not going to complain <laughs> okay so uh, we're starting we start in the sky okay page one uh, there's now this is oh god there's so much to cover here okay uh, so there's the there's a blue panel against the clouds the dark gray clouds and it's in it says Bruce you idiot uh, panel 2 it says you'll ruin everything as we zoom in towards something that looks like a large city uh, metropolis maybe Gotham City panel 3 we get closer uh, and the narration continues. So this is the first thing, which is a real innovation that was brought in, as far as I know, by The Dark Knight Returns, is using your captions as an internal monologue uh, for, for characters. So what's happening in these first four panels is that this is, um, this is Superman talking. This is his in internal monologue as he zooms in as we zoom in on the city that's not explained to you so uh, for the first time i read it i was like what's all what's who are the, who's who's saying this what's going on the narrator's gone all crazy what's this and then we cut uh to the interior of a liquor store i would say it would be a liquor store is lots of um bottles of booze there's a decrepit looking, uh, scary looking old lady almost there. Uh, this is a bag lady. She's got a pram, with a, pack, like a big garbage bag tied into it. She's got booze in her hand. And in the background, there is uh, something else, which is something that uh, would not fly today for sure, which is uh, some Nazis are there. Uh, there is a large Nazi woman with a flat top hairdo. Uh, and a swastika over each of her breasts. Uh, she looks like a bodybuilder. And she's she's insulting the cashier, who is surprisingly chipper considering the situation. 
and there are a couple of young blonde guys in sort of like grey stormtrooper type outfits, Nazi stormtrooper ones, yeah, sitting there with lugers, and they're speaking in some weird street slang, which is another feature of this. This was the future of 1986, so uh, the the year is never explicitly stated, but it's somewhere in the future, but it's the future that, of course, split off from our own timeline in the year 1986. So the two young accomplices, the gang members, are going, Clerk on Billy, Rob. Bruno get nasty, Don, you see. Bruno don't shiv. Uh, so you have to try and th translate what these people are saying from this weird street slang, which does not exist. The, the large woman is uh, threatening the clerk, who, as I said, is smiling for some reason. Uh, and he says, your boys used to be mutants, huh? Guess since their boss got his ass flattened, they'll work for anybody. He mentions this woman's boyfriend, who is in the loony bin. Uh, and we get uh, a shot of a woman. She's a bit like a female version of Dolph Lundgren, I would describe her as. The clerk is saying something about getting some work done, and she is not happy with this, pointing her machine gun at his face. Then this old lady, this, uh, this like homeless woman, one would assume, uh, barefoot in a big green shirt, a green, big big green skirt, overweight, uh, starts yelling in a messed up voice, "Thief! You're a thief!" Uh, complaining that Seven Eleven sells this booze cheaper uh so one of the one of the little thugs comes up and sticks a gun in the face we're on to page two and then we go uh the old woman grabs the gun and grabs his hand and forces the gun out of it and the captions begin he's young he's quick he almost pulls the trigger as she smashes him in the face with the uh bottle of booze she was complaining about and once again this is how comics are written today. That you will go straight into the internal monologue via caption of what's going on. But, for me, as uh, in 1986, versed as I was in superhero comics, I really had to struggle to translate as to what was going on. Uh, so, eventually, it, like, it clicked in your mind. And said, oh, this is... This is... Batman talking? He says, they almost get the drop on me. The, the two Nazi thugs are training their guns on him. And the old lady throws a couple of batarangs at them. Okay, so, once again, trying to translate what's going on. Oh, okay, so, this is not an old lady. This is not an old bag woman. This is, in fact, Batman in disguise. But, unlike a traditional comic book, it doesn't say, you know, ah... Oh, you know, there's no thought bubble thinking, um, oh, I looks like my old lady disguise worked. No, we're just thrown in the deep end. Uh, and forced to uh, sort out what's happening ourselves. Which, once again, was a complete change of uh, pace from what we were used to in comic books of the time. Um, okay, so there's a little action scene here. Uh, these little, they're more, they're more like, uh, I would say, shuriken throwing stars than your regular traditional batarangs because they embed themselves <laughs> into the uh, hands of the uh, of the baddies. 
he takes out the young uh, young punk. The guy behind the counter says, Bruno, she's getting away. So we know that this woman is called Bruno. Uh, we see a panel of the punk getting thrown into the wall of liquor that's behind the cashier. So without showing him actually throwing it. So we once again have to figure out what's going on. Uh, the clerk gets out his little revolver and puts it in the face of the young punk. He says, now, now we settle up. But uh, from off panel, Batman says, pull that trigger and I'll be back for you. So we've learned that this he still has his uh, code against killing. So that's the first two pages of uh, The Dark Knight Returns, book three, Hunt for Dark Knight. Uh, one thing I will point out is the art uh, done by mainly Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen, a very famous artist and a delineator of other people's works, is very distinctive and not... Uh, it's like very uh, noir, uh, very expressionistic, lots of negative space. Uh, and part of the thing that makes it work so well is the Magnificent Colours by Lynn Varley. Um, uh, like the opening clouds uh, are just like, you know, you know artist draws clouds. <laughs> but the way that they're coloured is like almost almost watercolored, almost like uh, certainly uh, a lot of this would have been uh, done with a uh, airbrush. You know, this is a sort of level of detail and uh, the color palette is a very earthy, subdued color palette uh, compared to what you're used to in comic books. Uh, these were printed, as I mentioned, in special editions. So the printing process uh, of a regular comic book would not have been able to handle the colors that were being uh, put down on the paper here, it would have just looked all gray. But uh, th with this thing, it's like a really uh, like astounding uh, coming from the usual, very clearly delineated works that you find in comics to this subtle, like washed, colored comic that we're dealing with here. So there's, and like already in the first two pages, several things are. Uh, becoming apparent. One is the violence. Uh, Batman smashes a guy in the face with a, a bottle full of liquor and then embeds some uh, batarangs deep into the wrists of the baddies. Uh, the kid is thrown into a wall of bottles. Uh, then there's like also the cartoonish uh, villains and over-the-topness of the bad guys. So you got Bruno, the Nazi supervillain. Well, I mean, she has no powers. She just like, I. She just has swastikas on her boobs. I mean, I don't think Frank Miller was going for any big political statement other than just to shock, with uh, to say this is how bad it's got, folks. And uh, I should probably mention it is visible in one part. Not only does she have swastikas over her boobs. She has got the uh, ass cut out of her pants, and there are swastikas on her ass as well. So there's a little, uh, I don't know, fetishist delight for you? Oh, I don't know what to say about that. But once again, it's it's intended to shock. And this is a thing, like the level of violence and the, the shock factor is another thing that has been taken into comics as a whole, uh, particularly mainstream superhero comics as a whole. And... Uh, 
that is like has been uh, mimicked and played and used over and over again from the Davis uh, comic came out to today. For better or for worse, uh, The Dark Knight Returns has influenced how comics are written and how comics are uh, illustrated to this very day. Because today, the, the printing processes used for comics are so much better than they were for the majority of comics in 1986. So that uh, this sort of like subdued colouring and expressive artwork can be used. But at the time, this was a revelation. Even more so than I would say uh, Watchmen, which uh, Dave Gibbon did a fantastic job of the art from. But this is I like easily superior to that. Um, so, but and that is not... I'd say that's partially due to... Um, Frank Miller's contribution, but a lot of it is due to Lynn Varley's uh, colours on this, which really bring the art to life in a way which is still uncommon to this day. Okay, so I've hit the half-hour point. So we've gotten through the cover and the first two pages of Batman The Dark Knight Returns. I guess we are we're done for this episode of Troubling Issues. I'd like to hear if you enjoyed uh, this solo episode of me just talking about myself and a little bit about a comic as well i i do want to get through the whole book and i think it's like 48 pages or something like that so if people like this i'll keep on going if they don't like it very much i'll do i'll get through it in an episode or two rather than taking a long time but i'd love to hear what you think now if you have a chance feel free please please i'm begging you uh leave a uh, a review and rate this podcast on Apple iTunes or whatever you get, wherever you're getting your pods. Let your friends know if you think it's uh, interesting and worthwhile. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff to cover in this book. And it's, it does mean, as I said, a lot to me personally. So with that, I'm going to call a close to this episode of Troubling Issues. Um, and next episode, we'll be back to our regular format with me and a guest. I hope to see you then. Or, I don't know. I won't see you because it's a podcast and I can't see you and you can't see me but I hope you listen to it then and hopefully I'll get back to uh, The Dark Knight Returns uh, book 3 shortly until then I'll see you next time on Troubling Issues bye